The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He also serves as a pastor here at Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very kind, Tom. Thank you. How are you doing there? Not too bad, Father. You just uh, came from retreat. I did. Yes, Father. And yes. it went well, I guess. Yes, Father. Yes, that's right. Yeah, well. a certain glow there, certain holiness. <laughs> okay. I'll so, take your word for it, Father. took, I guess. So. I'll take your word for but, it. Uh, I'm glad you were able to do that. That's, uh, that's yes, thing. it was very wonderful. Thank you, Father. Uh, Father, any prayers that you would like to request tonight before we uh, get into the program? Well, there are a number of good souls who just passed away. Uh, some at a, a young age. So I ask you to pray for them. I could mention names, but... Uh, I don't have to. God knows who they are. You pray for those intentions, and God will have mercy on them for you because of your thoughtfulness and charity. Mm -hmm. Also, there's a young lad who's very ill, uh, just a few years old, actually, but he's uh, very ill, and he has to go, to go a series of surgical procedures. Um, and so I ask you to please keep him in your prayers, him and his family. Um, and of course, uh, even apart from our youngster, there are quite a number of other people who are ill. We have uh, what I refer to as the Immaculate Heart of Mary prayer list. <clears throat> there are literally hundreds of people on the list we've been asked to pray for. Uh, requests coming from all over the world, actually. And so if you pray for those who are on the Immaculate Heart of Mary prayer list, the, re the reason why I refer to it that way is because um, when our Blessed Mother uh, took the newborn Christ child to the temple and presented him there, uh, Simeon, the prophet, said that a sword would pierce her heart, that the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. This is with regard to our Lord and his passion and his death. Uh, so our, Simeon was prophesying with regard to the little child, the newborn Christ child, and uh, that his suffering and death would be the piercing of her heart too. But we find in her heart, as it, as it were, all the, the hearts and the thoughts of all the faithful are kind of summed up in her mother's heart. And so uh, all of these intentions we have to pray for, I, I figure we, we commit to our Blessed Mother's heart like some sort of a great vessel in which she maintains all of those intentions. It is also said, and it was said at that time in the Gospel, that Mary kept all these things in her heart. She pondered all these things in her heart. So I like to think of Our Lady's heart as, as a, a vessel holding all of the good thoughts and prayers of the faithful, kind of encapsulating them there, and uh, that our hearts are united with her immaculate heart in that way. So, you know, we, we, you and I uh, can't keep all of these intentions instantaneously in mind, but she can, and she does, especially when we deliberately, intentionally recommend the, the intentions to her. She doesn't forget. Mm -hmm. She has a, a real mother's heart. Oh. Okay, that's very beautiful. Thank you, Father. Very great. Um, Father, we uh, are at a very beautiful time of the uh, liturgical year right now. I, I know you've, um, you've mentioned this, that uh, 
this past Sunday we had the feast of the kingship of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and um, <clears throat> that was quickly followed by uh, the feast of All Saints, a holy day of mm -hmm. obligation. And today we have the uh, the feast day of All Souls, the commemoration of the faithful departed, All Souls Day, as it's known. Um, so I, I um, we'd like to talk about the kingship of Christ, but but first, Father, I would like to to focus on the, the feast of today, um, just just for a few moments, if we could. And um, during during this this All Souls Day, we um, we I guess the the priest has three masses. He has uh, privilege to say three masses on mm -hmm. on this day, um, like, like Christmas itself. Mm -hmm. And there there are many um, there are many uh, prayers that are being offered for for the poor souls in purgatory on this day. But I'd like to ask Father if you could explain why why is it so important for Catholics to pray for the souls of the faithful departed. Um, our, the church teaches us that uh, if they are in purgatory. That means they have saved their soul. Their their salvation is, is certain. Um, so, what what reason is there to pray for them? Some would argue that perhaps our prayers would be better spent on ourselves, uh, or maybe on, on others, other sinners in the world whose salvation is not certain. Um, so, why is it so important to pray for the poor souls when we could be spending our prayers on someone else? Well, it's a, a kind of an interesting concept, right? I, I need the prayers more than they do because <laughs> they're saved and I'm not, right? Uh, or, you know, someone I love is struggling and uh, needs the prayers even more than I do, perhaps. Uh, so I'd say, but we pray for the poor souls and the church encourages us to pray for the poor souls because when a soul uh, leaves purgatory and enters into the eternal happiness of heaven, the entire church benefits from that. <clears throat> the entire church benefits from the prayers of a new saint, as it were, in the beatific vision of God. And those who prayed for that soul would be the principal, principal beneficiaries as the principal, principal benefactors of a soul that would leave purgatory and go into that blessed um, vision of God, the light of glory. Uh, they, those souls take with them before the throne of God an immense gratitude for all of their benefactors. <clears throat> benefactors during their lives here on earth but benefactors during their time in purgatory who advance them toward the uh, the moment of their um, blessedness. Mm. So, um, so yes, I mean, I, I need the prayers. Uh, I would be presumptuous enough to say that you need the prayers. And there are many others also here on earth who, who uh, are certain, whose salvation is not certain, and we might be tempted to think we'd be better off praying for for each other uh, who are still wayfarer, wayfarers in this life and whose souls still, you know, as it were, hang in the balance of God's justice and mercy. But we realize that when we pray for the souls in purgatory, uh, we are actually benefiting the church suffering and the church triumphant. And, um, and necessarily also benefiting the church militant as well mm -hmm. here on earth, including ourselves. So, um, you know, when I, when I pray for a soul in purgatory and uh, that soul um, has completed its uh, mission in purgatory because it has something it has to accomplish there and enters into eternal happiness with God and uh, joins those great prayers, right, of the saints, because that's what the saints do. You know, they are constantly wrapped in, in uh, gratitude and thanksgiving to Almighty God and, and praise of God. Um, that th those prayers are for our own, ben our own benefit too. And perhaps I can do much more good for my own soul and much more good for uh, the soul of someone I love 
by uh, having a, another soul enter into everlasting blessedness with that intention to pray for me and my intentions as a benefactor who contributed to that mm-hmm. that uh, moment that they were glorified in heaven. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a rather fantastic thought if we stop to think about it, um, that, that our prayers can actually lead a soul and in, into heaven um, and I guess extinguish the fires of, of purgatory, so to speak. How is that possible? How can our prayers possibly be that powerful to extinguish the, soul, the, the flames of purgatory <clears throat> to lead a soul to heaven? How can our prayers here on earth possibly be that powerful? Well, um, extinguishing the fires of purgatory, I'm not sure. We deliver a soul from the fires yeah. of purgatory, that's for sure. Um, but in order to answer that question, one has to uh, have answers to other questions first, such as uh, why are souls in purgatory in the first place? What is purgatory? And um, we say that purgatory is a place of punishment. It's not a place of eternal punishment, though. So it's very distinct from hell. It's a place, a place of temporal punishment or temporary punishment. You see, when we confess our sins, notably our, our mortal sins, the, the principal matter of the sacrament of, um, and the principal object of the absolution of the sacrament of penance, um, we, we will not be uh, condemned to hell for those sins. We confess them sincerely, we repent of them, we are absolved of them, and so the eternal punishment due to those sins, uh, mortal sins, no longer will um, take us to hell. Um, but uh, we still have the consequences in this world of the damage we do. We talked about this before. The fact that I repent of my mortal sins sincerely and receive absolution and do whatever penance I'm given to do them doesn't make those sins with the consequences of those sins go away. God forgives me the guilt of those sins, and um, he's very good and thorough and ready to forgive. And yet, many of my sins have hurt other souls. Many of my sins have scandalized others. And we know how serious a matter that is in God's mind. We read the Gospels, and time and time again, our Lord is telling us, if if your brother has something against you, uh, when you're bringing a gift to the altar, leave your gift there and go make things right with your brother, our Lord said. Just recently we had the gospel um, of the man, the servant who owed 10,000 talents to his king, and the king forgave him. But that servant wouldn't forgive his own fellow servant, uh, basically uh, a, a much, an infinitesimally smaller debt. He wouldn't forgive. And the king hauled him back in and said, "What? I forgave you that enormous debt, and you wouldn't forgive your own servant? that much smaller debt, and then the king punished him terribly for that lack of forgiveness. And uh, so, I mean, we, we, we pray in the Our Father every day, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So our Lord does care very much how we treat each other. In a sense, he is much more willing to forgive sins committed against him than he is willing to overlook the damage that we do to other souls. And the damage that we do to others in this life is called the temporal punishment due to sin. Uh, the scandal that we cause to another soul, uh, perhaps even you know, driving them away from God, away from faith, away from hope, away from charity, by that example we set for them, 
the negligence that we exercise and what we should be doing uh, for God's service and for the benefit of others that we do not do because of laziness or pride or whatever it is. We're responsible for all that. And uh, the fact that we repent of our sins and us having offended God by these things <clears throat> means that God does forgive, but it doesn't make the damage go away. We're responsible for the damage we cause here. And that's what the temporal punishment is due for. It's due to address that very issue. The damage we do in this world by our life, especially the damage we do to the souls of other people. Um, and so... Um, Purgatory is required of us in order to deal with that. Um, what the church wants us to do is to try to correct the damage we do as much as possible. In other words, if I go to confession, I confess, well, I've done this, this, and the other thing. and I've uh, Now, it could be sins of stealing, and the, uh, the church tells me through the confessional that I'm obliged to make restitution. If I steal something, if I damage some property of other people, if I defraud other people, I'm responsible for paying back their loss. And, you know, in terms of dollars and cents, I, that's something perhaps I can do. Not everybody can repair the damage caused by stealing and graft and so on. After all, perhaps the person we stole from has died. We can't recompensate re them for that. Perhaps we moved away, lost track of them entirely. Perhaps we don't even know who, who suffered the loss. <clears throat> by by this the theft that we did. Um, perhaps we don't have the the means, the money to pay them back, you know, or you know how, we don't know how we could possibly compensate them for the damage we've done. There are any number of reasons why we can't make restitution in this life. We're still responsible though mm -hmm. for for the damage we've done. But but that's the easy part. I mean, paying people back for the damage we've done in terms of damaging their car or. Um, or stealing money from them, or whatever. That's the easy part. The hard part is, how do you compensate someone for the scandal you've caused them? You know, when, a, when an older brother is, is cussing, cursing, uh, swearing, and using all kinds of vulgar language in front of his younger siblings, and he scandalizes them, how does he fix that? You can go to them later and say, that was really a mistake, but by that time, it's done the damage. Uh, let's say, how does one fix uh, the bad example he's, he's given in stealing in front of his younger siblings and teaching them to steal. Um, as though it's perfectly okay, perhaps even something to boast about, be proud of what you got away with. Uh, then he, he repents of it, God will forgive him. But he goes back to those poor souls, how does he fix that, the damage he's done to them? Who knows how badly they've taken his example and perhaps even exceeded the malice of his example. And, the, the, you know, you look at the things we do, uh, go down the commandments, and so many of those commandments involve things that we do that scandalize other people. And uh, not only offend God, which is the principal reason it's sinful, obviously, <clears throat> but they actually uh, inflict a very severe injury on the souls of others in scandalizing them away from God. Uh, God forgives, but the damage remains. We have to try to repair that. The church wants us to try to repair the scandal we've given and the damage we've done to other souls as much as possible in this life. But we're very limited in what we can do. We pray for the souls we've, we've scandalized. Uh, at the, um, at the, the, the canon of every Mass, we have the memento of the living and the memento of the dead. 
and we should pray for those who are our benefactors. We should also pray for our victims every day, every Mass. Ask God to have mercy on our victims and somehow repair the damage we've done by our negligence or our just outright bad example. Um, so when we leave this life and we leave that unfinished business here, that's what purgatory awaits us. That's why it's called purgatory. Purgare means to purge or purify. But that also indicates there's another purpose. And that other purpose has to do with our love for God. We know from what our Lord Jesus Christ told us that in order to be saved and have everlasting life, we have to keep the commandments of God. And obeying his commandments is a matter of loving him. But one does not have to love God with a perfect love in order to obey the commandments. One simply has to love him more than anything else. So that uh, if the choice comes between being faithful to God or some other challenge, because our love for God is the paramount love in our life, we will choose him first and we will obey his commandments. Okay? It's only when we love something more than we love him that we actually commit sin and mortal sin. Choosing something in God's place, as such as effectively telling God, effectively telling him to get out of my soul. I don't have room for you. I want this instead. But one doesn't have to have a perfect love for God in order to choose him first, always, and just be faithful to the commandments. Uh, there's another love for God which goes far beyond that. This is what happened when uh, the uh, rich young man approached our Lord and said, Lord, Master, what must I do to have everlasting life? And our Lord said, Obey the commandments. And the man said, Well, I've done this from my youth, indicating that that's what he does, uh, in a standard operating procedure in his life. And our Lord looked at him and, and saw that there was a real goodness in him. And that's when our Lord said to him, Well, if you want to be perfect, he said, if you want to be perfect, leave all things um, you know, sell them, give everything to the poor, come follow me. And uh, this is what corresponds to the commandment, the first great commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, thy whole mind, thy whole soul, thy whole strength, and the second commandment like it, thy neighbor as thyself. There is a difference between loving God most and loving God with all your, all your love. Mm -hmm. And that's perfection. So when we die... And when we die in the state of grace, which means we basically are doing what our Lord said was necessary to have an everlasting life, and that is obeying the commandments. We're in the state of grace. We've not choose, chosen anything in God's place in our life as some kind of an idol to worship in place of him. But that still doesn't mean we have the perfect love for God that is necessary to fulfill even the first great commandment. Our Lord even says that that basically comprises all the prophets and all the law, everything that we are obliged to do uh, by the prophets and the law are summed up. Everything is summed up in that, this great commandment to love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. <clears throat> Those of us who die without that perfect love are not condemned to hell. By the grace of God, we are still saved as long as we love him most. And purgatory purifies that love. Uh, purgatory takes the love with which we go before the judgment seat of God, 
that love which is sufficient to enable us to be faithful to him in the choices we make. And purgatory will purify that love and make it perfect so that we love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And when we do that, that's when we're ready to enter heaven. We've uh, satisfied for all of the temporal punishment due to the sins that we've left behind, uh, all the damage we've left behind in this earth, and we are ready now because of our perfect love for God to enter heaven. So those two things are accomplished in purgatory. And uh, thanks be to God, there is a purgatory to enable us to do these things. What's the alternative? It just goes to show to what extent God will go in order to save souls and get them to heaven. That he would be willing to do this for us. And he does. And we should be very grateful to God that there is a purgatory. But it would offend God very much if we just aimed for purgatory and didn't aim for heaven. Right? Because we should want to. What we should want to do is love him perfectly. Not just love him enough to save our souls, but love him perfectly because he is all good and worthy of all our love. That's what God wants of us. He doesn't want us aiming for purgatory. <clears throat> he wants us aiming for heaven. So, you know, this is why um, our prayers can help the souls in purgatory. They're unable to um, make up for the damage they've done here on earth. They, they, we call them the poor souls because all they can do now is suffer for the damage they've done and pay that price. But you and I, still living in this veil of tears, have a prerogative that they, they no longer have. We can deliberately go out of our way to make acts of love for God. You and I can deliberately go out of our way to make acts of love for our neighbor because of the, our love for God. And by doing that, we can actually help the souls in purgatory. We can offer prayers to God out of move by love for the souls in purgatory. And, uh, and, you know, wanting to more and more saints in heaven to glorify God. So out of love for God, ultimately, we're moved to pray as we are today for, the, for all souls. <coughs> Excuse me. Even though the acts, um, <clears throat> the good works we're called upon to perform in themselves, are basically um, child's, child's prayers. I mean, our Lord has taught us to pray. The Our Father, um, the angel Gabriel brought the word of God, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Hail Mary, the glory be to the Father, the doxology, singing God's praises, the blessed Trinity. I mean, these, these prayers are what are given to us as the means of obtaining a plenary indulgence today for the souls in purgatory. So the church tells us that if we enter a church or a cemetery <clears throat> motivated by a love for souls and a love for God, and pray, not just say, pray six Our Fathers, six Hail Marys, and six Glory Be to the Father, which any child can do, and um, that we can gain a plenary indulgence for a soul in purgatory, and that that God will take uh, for uh, the payment of all the temporal punishment due to the sins of an entire lifetime of some poor soul who's there. Now, it's not that our, our fathers and Hail Marys and Glory Bees are really, technically speaking, the equivalent <laughs> of that, um, that temporal punishment, but by virtue of those prayers, uh, the church militant on earth appeals to God's mercy to draw 
from the treasury of the merits of our Lord, our Blessed Mother, and all the saints. And uh, united with our poor prayers, that is what actually delivers that soul from purgatory due to the temporal punishment due to sin. Uh, it is actually accessing the treasury of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Blessed Mother, and all the saints. You know? mm-hmm. um, the church militant, you might say, doesn't have any more jurisdiction over those souls in, purga- in, in purgatory, because after all, the church on earth is the church militant, and um, the, that is what really comprises the souls here on earth. The church suffering of those who are left behind this world, this life, and have gone into another phase of their life, that is purgatory, uh, technically speaking, are not actually directly under the jurisdiction of the church on earth. So one might say, well, how does the church on earth have any standing there for it to gain any benefit for the souls in purgatory? And the answer is, well, because those souls in purgatory are here, were here, lived a life here under the jurisdiction of the church militant, and the benefits of all the graces uh, that they received, that came through being member of the church here on this earth. Mm-hmm. And, um, but also their sins were committed here and their failings were committed here. And the church on earth, has to, in a sense, has to deal with those failings that they left behind. So the church does have a certain claim, the church militant, to ask God to have mercy on those human souls that are now in purgatory and ask God's mercy for them. Mm-hmm. Even uh, across the... Uh, the, the, the vast expanse of eternity, you know, reaching into, into the next world and uh, invoking God's mercy on those souls, which are really her children. Uh, the church on earth as a mother does, in a sense, give birth to the souls that are sent to the judgment seat of Christ in the seat of grace. And so she can't forget them. She still loves them. God wants that and encourages that so that we can gain indulgences for them, to benefit them, to take care of the debt that they still owe mm-hmm. here on earth. Father, could you uh, briefly... Oh, by the way, if I may tell yeah. I don't want to make a plenary indulgence. sounds like it's just a matter of rattling off a few <coughs> prayers um, um, uh, without, you know, attention and devotion. Not at all. I say they have to be prayed. But in order to gain a plenary indulgence, there are actually some very strict requirements. The church says that a soul, a person here on earth has to be in the state of grace to gain an indulgence of any kind. In <clears throat> the first place, they have to be in the state of grace. Then within a week, they have to receive Holy Communion worthily. So make a worthy Holy Communion for the sake of the indulgence. Make a good confession and receive absolution for the sake of the indulgence. But also, and perhaps this is the most difficult part, they have to have their minds made up resolutely to overcome all habits of venial sins. So if a soul on earth wants to gain a plenary indulgence for a soul in purgatory, and that soul here on earth realizes, well, I I have a quick temper, and I do tend to overreact and get very impatient at times, or I overeat, or I'm I'm lazy, or whatever. That's a habit of venial sin. And they have to make up their mind that they're going to stop that but they're going to make the effort by the grace of God to overcome even their habits of venial sin. That's necessary to gain a plenary indulgence. So it's not just a matter of praying six Our Fathers, six Hail Marys, and six Glory Vs. 
as though there's some sort of a magic lever you pull, you know, to automatically draw a, a plenary indulgence from heaven. Uh, no, there there are things you have to bring to the table with you uh, in terms of the state of your own soul and uh, your your relationship with Almighty God and your will to be faithful to Him to gain that plenary indulgence for a soul in purgatory. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's great. Father, could you uh, briefly describe some of the principal sufferings of a soul in purgatory? Because um, this is a rather terrifying thought, what, what you're describing here, where um, in purgatory we must atone, make up for every, uh, every skin of, sin of scandal, every slightest defect that we have for the love of God. That, that seems to be a very, very terrifying thought. But at the same time, um, those in purgatory must be extremely consoled by the thought that they accomplish the one goal they had in life to save their soul. They, they finish the race, so to speak. They cross the finish line uh, successfully, and they know that they have saved their soul. That's the one great um, care, anxiety that, that all of us have mm-hmm. here on earth, and they know that they actually accomplish that. So how, how, what, is, what is going on with a, a soul in purgatory where they have this tremendous suffering, but at the same time this tremendous consolation? Mm-hmm. What is it like to be in purgatory? Well, some would say attending one of my classes, <laughs> my conferences, <laughs> <laughs> they go on forever, but uh, purgatory is, doesn't go on forever, so that's different from my <laughs> talks, you know. Um, <clears throat> uh, the suffering in purgatory is very different from the suffering in hell, obviously, mm-hmm. because there there is despair. Um, but um, but there is the temporal punishment due to sin, and there is the fire of purgatory, and yes, there is the pain of sense in purgatory. Uh, is it identical to the pain of sense in hell? Um, well, I mean, there are theological um, principles involved, theological discussions about those things. But um, the, the suffering, the, the pain of sense in hell is of such an intensity um, that it, it is, um, it is, it, it is hard, impossible to describe. I mean, we, we have a, a, an idea of what hell is like because we know what it is to suffer physically here on earth. Um, we have an idea of what hell is like uh, because we know what it is to suffer anguish and sorrow and, uh, and grief, grief here on earth. That's the pain of loss in hell, that grief we experience. It's not grief that moves the soul to repentance. It is purely selfish grief, like what have I done to myself? You know? Now the souls in, in purgatory do have the pain of sense. They have to they have to suffer for the excesses of their lives here on earth, their painful self-indulgence, their sinful self-indulgence. When the priest goes to anoint those who are dying here, he anoints their eyes and their ears, nostrils and mouth and hands and feet, if can be done conveniently. In fact, he used to uh, anoint the reins, you know, where the kidneys were in the back and so on. Uh, but there's a reason why the sacrament of extreme unction is administered in this way. Because the, the power of seeing, the power of hearing, the, the sense of smell, the power of, of taste and speech, of course, touch, uh, the power of walking, all of these things contribute to our sins. Uh, these are the powers that God has endowed us with in order to serve him in this life and to um, praise him and to help not only our, 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 our own uh, salvation, but the souls of others to be saved too. And yet all too often we use these powers to defy God 
we use these powers to 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 to, to uh, uh, attack each other in what we say and do, and so on, and making them even um, uh, accomplices in our own sin. So we have to uh, we anoint these senses of the body, these five external senses of the body in particular. Asking God to be merciful, to grant forgiveness for any sins committed by these powers, but also implied is that in in that is a secondary purpose of the sacrament. That is to restore the body to health again. And time and time again, priests do witness that. There's not a priest alive today who is a valid priest who has administered the sacrament extra function, who who doesn't have amazing stories to tell. Um, that to this day, I mean, even amaze the priest. And you can tell when he's telling a story how he's still really amazed at what, what happened, you know. We see the power of that sacrament of extreme unction. <clears throat> but, of course, the primary purpose of the sacrament is not so much the benefit of the body, although we see it happen very often, but for the benefit of the soul, to strengthen the soul, um, and to strengthen the soul in particular for the last battle <clears throat> against Satan, for example, who's trying to make the soul despair and give up hope in, in Christ. Um, <clears throat> but the reason why when we go to purgatory then we find this, this pain of sense there is because uh, well, we see that uh, concern the church has in administering extra unction because she sees where purgatory leads them and the pain of sense, the suffering they're going to have to endure for the sins committed by these powers that God gave us to interact with the world around us for his good for our good, for his glory, and ultimately for our own glorification. And this is what we do with them. We abuse them. There is punishment for that. But one punishment there is not in hell, <clears throat> in, <clears throat> I'm sorry, in purgatory, <clears throat> that we find in hell is the punishment of despair, <clears throat> the punishment of absolute hopelessness. Rather, in purgatory, the soul is suffused with this enormous hopefulness that it will see God. It doesn't see God yet in the beatific vision, so it still, in a sense, needs the hope and uh, that it will, right here. But, uh, but regardless, um, the one pain that this inflicts on the soul is that delay, that delay, that it, it has work yet to accomplish, it has something yet to do, that the temporal punishment due to its sins is still holding it back from the beatific vision um, and barring the way. The fact that it's inadequate love for God because it is not perfect love for God, that is something that does cause a certain grief in the soul. And so there is a certain anguish for the soul in purgatory because of that, because it is being kept from, from Almighty God in the company of the saints by these failures on its own part. And so that is, again, part of the suffering of purgatory, that uh, realizing that it is saved, in fact, and, uh, and cannot be lost, cannot go to hell, will, in fact, see God. Of course, that is a source of great joy. At the same time, the, and, and anticipation, really, at the same time, it is also the kind of negative that my love for God has fallen short of that. Um, it was adequate to save me.
from the fires of hell, but not yet adequate to enable me to enter heaven. And um, so that that's still well. We know we know what it is to to wait, especially for something really good. And uh, we know how hard it is for us to wait. And the souls in purgatory, they 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 understand that a thousand times over. Right? Imagine, right? Um, you're as though you're on the very threshold of heaven, but you can't go through yet. Not yet. Not yet. Mm-hmm. And that's how they are. So that's why our prayers for them are so, so important. Mm-hmm. Father, any um, final words on, on purgatory? Any practical advice that you can give? What, what should Catholics be well, doing every day uh, to help them? Here on earth, the church militant, don't give scandal. Right? <laughs> so, in other words, try to set the best example for those around you. Right? Be mindful of that. Uh, be mindful of, well, your habits of venial sin, because your habits of venial sin can be a continual source of scandal to others. More than you realize, you're going to find out how much your habits of venial sin have scandalized other people and maybe led them to, well, <clears throat> first of all, th- th- your habits of venial sin might make others look back and say, well, that's a Catholic for you, and that's what they do. Um, uh, so that's a form of scandal. Might even be a, a heavy weight for others around you to bear, to put up with this, and say, oh, you know, there he goes again, or there she goes again, you know, we have to put up with that again. And so that can cause someone to, well, maybe even love God less. Um, but the worst of it is, I think if somebody sets a, a habit of bad example because of habits of venial sin, that they get people who imitate them, you know, follow that bad example. Well, it can't be that bad. Look, you know, so-and-so is a good person, and they do that. So, and, um, or even make them think, well, you know, they have this bad habit. Well, maybe I do too, but it's not as bad as theirs, so it's okay. We, we like to compare ourselves to other people. So, uh, in, any, in any case, you know, people with habits of venial sin, let's face it, I mean, I, I have to plead guilty there with everybody else. Um, you know, we should take them seriously because that's what goes on in purgatory. That's what purgatory is all about, dealing with the, the scandals that we've, uh, the, the kind of, and uh, holding back other souls by the fact that we are don't love God as we should, you know, uh, and are not evidently not not trying to, if we're not trying to overcome those habits of venial sin. Mm-hmm. So one should do what the church says is necessary to gain a plenary indulgence. <laughs> you know, go to confession regularly, receive absolution, receive our Lord worthily in holy communion, uh, and uh, have the intention to overcome habits of venial sin. Uh, I'd say that's a pretty good program right there. Uh, all for the sake of loving God more. Um, and also, uh, you know, make reparation. Make reparation for our failures of the past. We should all look upon the difficulties of our daily day life as an opportunity more than a burden to say, well, gee, by, by exercising a little bit of patience here, by exercising a little bit of patience on the road, by exercising a little patience with this uh, situation, you mean I can actually shorten my purgatory and I can actually offer that as a sacrifice to God for myself or for someone I love or for a soul in purgatory? I can do that. So I can take this little bit of earthly dirt and turn it into gold for somebody just like that. That's real alchemy right there. That's power. <laughs> you know, Spiritually, God has the power to do that by, by his grace and his love. So we should be looking to do that. Not looking to avoid it. We should be looking to, to, to try to turn everything we can into gold like that. Mm-hmm. Or somebody. 
and pray. Pray uh, for the souls that we've scandalized, those I, I call our victims, yeah. and they say notably at Mass, in our rosaries, our daily rosaries. <clears throat> and uh, when, we, when we think especially of somebody we don't like, or somebody we say we don't carry a grudge, but we do, because we think about them in our first we get this kind of bad taste in our mouth because, oh, you know, a person grates on me. Or they've done, some, done something wrong to me and I'm mad at them about this. But then if we respond out of grace, not out of nature and, and pride, and we respond to grace and say just, oh, God, have mercy on them. God, have mercy on them. Uh, and meet it. <laughs> I mean, what's that worth? In the eyes of God, it's worth a great deal. Our Lord says if you even give something you called a, a cup of cold water in the relief of some little one who believes in him, and you do it for God's, God's sake, how much more is, is that offering a little prayer for them than giving them a cup of cold water, you know, gives them temporary relief. So by offering a little prayer for them, we can give them much more than that. And the reward for that is much greater, too. Hmm. Not only that, but who benefits more from that? The object of our prayer, the person who we find irritating, or ourselves? We actually benefit more from that prayer than they do. So there are a lot of things we can do to uh, offset uh, the purgatory due to our, the temporal punishment due to our sins. Okay. Well, thank you, Father. That's all very beautiful. Um, just just a couple minutes left. Father, we wanted to try and keep this program shorter since you know, you've had a very busy schedule with two Masses yesterday for the Holy no, Day. We barely got started yet. Three Masses yesterday, or today, rather. Um, but, Father, the other... Uh, Feast day, just this past Sunday, the last Sunday of October, we celebrated the, the feast day of the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. So could you um, give us a, a few words on that feast day, Father, and what, what that means as we celebrate um, our Lord be, being king over all, all of society um, here on earth? Any words about that kingship? Any words about our, our society today? Well, you know, our Lord came to earth, the Son of God, with certain powers and rights uh, as the Son of God and as our Savior, um, our Lord came as not a prophet, but the prophet, the prophet, in the sense that he predominantly speaks for God, because he is the Son of God. He doesn't just represent God, he is God. And so he speaks as the prophet, speaking on behalf of God. Um, and so it is with uh, his power, not only as prophet, but as priest. I mean, he has the power to sanctify souls. And uh, you have others who are priests, or you talk about a priest, a priest. Well, he is the priest. As St. Paul says, he is the high priest because he is the true mediator behind, between God and man. And all mediatorship and all power of mediating between God and man originates in him. He has, he has ordained his apostles. He's given them power. He sent them forth. They themselves then continue that priesthood. But all of that priesthood goes back to him because he is the priest, and his priesthood is the source of all other. There is no priesthood without his. And he has been uh, good enough to share it with us, too. <clears throat> but the, the third power of our Lord is that of pastor. So he's the prophet, the priest, and the pastor. And the pastor is the one who rules. He rules the flock, right? He commands the flock. Another word we have for that is king. Uh, that, that governing authority of a pastor is the governing authority of the king. And we know our Lord is the king. Right? He was denounced to Pilate uh, because they say he claimed to be the king of the Jews. 
uh, ironically, just after he had tried to escape and not allow them to make him their king, here they show up and they accuse him of, of the opposite, of wanting that, claiming that. And uh, Pilate asked him, uh, Art thou a king then? And our Lord says, Yes, as thou sayest, I am a king. For this was I born, and for this came I into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Anyone, everyone who is of the truth heareth my voice. So our Lord makes it very clear that although his kingdom is not of this world, it, it is, his kingdom is in this world. Uh, the fact that his kingdom is not of this world means its foundation is not here. The foundation of kingship here in this world is very shallow. It's, it's basically meaningless. Kings come and go. Kingdoms come and go. Empires come and go. There is no stable, solid authority of this world. And so when our Lord was saying his kingdom is not of this world, he's actually saying my kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. It is a kingdom that comes from another source here, which is permanent, everlasting, solid, not like the kings of the earth who come and go. And then uh, one minute people are bowing before them, and the next minute they're basically spitting on their graves and mocking them and, uh, and, and uh, denouncing them. No, no, our Lord's kingdom uh, is not of this world. It is of the next. It is of heaven. It is of eternity. It is secure, solid, uh, in, unshakable. And, uh, but our Lord's kingdom is in the world. Time and time again, our Lord talked about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. His parables were all about that. But is establishing the church here on earth. His kingdoms are about the church that he was establishing here on earth to be his kingdom. Uh, our Lord talked about the good and the bad being in the kingdom. That doesn't apply to the kingdom of God in, in heaven in eternity. Only the good are there. But on earth, no, the church on earth, the church militant, Christ's kingdom here, does include the good, and it does include the bad. Why? Because Christ has come here to, to claim sinners, to call sinners. And so the church necessarily includes sinners here on this earth. We have to get used to it. We have to get, accept that idea. And we are among them, right? So when we enter the church on Sunday, we are announcing to the world, I'm a sinner, I need a redeemer, and here he is. This is my Lord and Redeemer, Jesus Christ is here for me. And so that's why I'm here. So um, the, the kingdom of our Lord, though, is not limited to the faithful here on earth. It's a kingdom of the truth, he says. And the truth is his faith. The truth is the faith that he taught. The truth is the faith that he sent the apostles out to preach to all the nations. That's the kingdom of truth. It begins with the true faith. And you have to have the true faith in order to be in that kingdom. He makes it very clear. He came to bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth heareth this voice. That truth is the faith that he came to teach all nations through his apostles. That's the beginning right there. And that's the, the first condition of a citizenship in that kingdom of Christ. The first thing we owe him is belief. The first thing we owe him is the fact that he is the God who can neither deceive nor be deceived, and what he teaches us is the truth. And we need to know the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, as taught by Jesus Christ, and have the faith in order to even belong to his kingdom here on earth. But it would be a mistake to say that his kingdom here on earth extends only to those who are faithful. It would be a mistake to say that our Lord's kingdom here on earth extends only to those who are members of his church here on earth. That's not true. It is true to say that those who are members of his church on earth belong to his kingdom. They have the true faith. They have to, to belong to his kingdom. 
would they have to have hope in him and love for him also? Well, yes, in order to save their souls, they do. To be living members, to be living, practicing members, as it were, of the kingdom of Christ on earth, they have to be, even as members of the church. They can have faith and yet be in the state of mortal sin, not loving him enough to serve him well. But they still have the faith and the hope that faith gives them that they can return to the state of grace. But even those who are not of the church, even those who do not have the faith, they are subject not to the laws of the church, but they are still subject to the laws of Christ. Those who are not validly baptized here on earth, they are subject to the laws of Jesus Christ as their Redeemer. And um, he, he is no less their Redeemer than he is our Redeemer, right? Even if they do not look for him as their Redeemer, and even if they will not be saved by him, he is their Redeemer. He paid for their sins on that cross. And so they are entirely subject to him and his is. He is not only the Redeemer in terms of his manhood that he took to himself, his humanity, but as the very Son of God, he has absolute rights over every man, woman, and child created. And so those who uh, reject him are indeed subject to him. They must look to him as their lawgiver. As I say, that they may not as those who are not members of the church, they are not subject to the laws of the church, the precepts of the church. Mm. But they are subject to Christ. This is something that, um, you know, Pope Pius XI, in instituting this feast in 1925, uh, made clear, all mankind is subject to our Lord as their lawgiver, as their judge, and as the executor of their judgment for reward or punishment. And they may mock our Lord now and ridicule him. They may weave a crown of thorns and beat it on, on, on his head with the reed or the rod, as the soldiers did, right? But uh, the fact is that our lifetimes are very are measured uh, in the eyes of God, right down to the second, right? And uh, we will be called to stand before the tribunal of Christ. Uh, he has made laws governing all mankind that we are all subject to and all responsible for. Those who will have him and those who won't. And we will be judged according to his law as to whether we have honored him or dishonored him. And the sentence then will be passed uh, for those who are faithful and for those who are not. So um, they may be partying right now, and heaven knows today in the world, and we see the de degradation of our whole society because of the rejection of Jesus Christ. We see that. We saw it after the French Revolution. We saw there was this, this massive revolt against the reign of Christ here on the world in the French Revolution. And we saw the degradation of the French society where it was considered something admirable to be crude, vicious, uh, to ridicule, holy things, even decent things. Anything that was decent was sent held up to ridicule, right? Uh, to be barbaric was considered to be your civic virtue now. And anything that was really virtuous would be considered to be something to, to be despised, detested, denounced, even even murdered, you know? 
uh, people were going out of their way to be crude uh, during the French and after, you know, in the wake of the French Revolution. We had see the same thing happening in our society here, with that massive rejection of our Lord and His sovereignty. We see our entire society being dragged down into the septic mire. I mean, just listen to the language of people. I mean, even the so-called conservatives have stooped so low where they're using this, uh, the obscenities in their language over and over again. Um, I, th- I think you, you related to me the case right outside your own window, right? Was it just today? Just today. Huh? Uh, some young girl was going by on a, on a telephone and she was just using the obscenity over and over and over again, right? It used to be like, like, like. You couldn't say a sentence without like this and like that. Now it's not that. Now there's another word that has replaced that, right? And, uh, and, and even the so-called conservatives, even the so-called good guys wearing the mega hats are using these obscenities. And it's all part of the degradation of our society. You find, uh, you know, not just, uh, you know, mothers, but grandmothers and great-grandmothers using obscenities, you know, routinely now. And uh, it's a measure of where we're going, right down into the muck. And the kind of things that, you know, are appearing uh, for our entertainment, our amusement, for the ads that are move, meant to move us to buy products um, and services, they often uh, just pitch themselves to the lowest, lowest element in human nature. Because that's what sells now, evidently. That's what they think sells. We see what's being taught to our children in the, in the, in the government schools. And uh, we say that government itself is like a gigantic parasite just sucking the lifeblood out of our society in every way, you know. When government becomes just like this a gigantic parasite, like, a, like a, some kind of a tick that is just gorging itself in the blood of society, of the people of its society, that's, that's basically what we're looking at here. That's what happened in socialist and communist societies everywhere. The government became an enormous parasite, bureaucrats, who just, in every way they could, drew the lifeblood out of all his people, just murderously. And we see that happening today, too. These elections coming up here in just a matter of days are very, very important. Um, Do I think they're going to be the end-all and the be-all that's going to save us? No, I don't. I don't believe that. Why? Well, because whatever real expectation we have of good coming out of anything like that would have to come from... Uh, what Our Lady tells us at Fatima means we have to reform. We have to reform and repent of our sins, make reparation for the sins we have committed, change our ways, be more faithful to God. I don't see a lot of that happening. I see a lot of people trying to, to go back to the traditional Catholic faith and the traditional Catholic religion and practice the traditional Catholic Mass again, in spite of all the pressures coming from the Vatican, in spite of all the pressures that are even coming from our own government, uh, to be to practice tradition and the traditional faith, uh, I see good coming from that. You know, uh, but by and large, I mean, um, you know, we as a society have not repented. We have blood not only on our hands; we're actually drowning in the blood of our infants, our children, uh, being murdered in the womb by abortion. Um, we're drowning in the blood even of those who are being mercilessly killed in mercy killing. Um, in our nursing homes and, uh, and other facilities, right, for those who are ill and elderly. Um, so the respect for life has just really, really been 
uh, at, at a low, at seemingly at an all-time low in the world today. The respect for human life and its, its purpose that's created in God's image and likeness is created for God, to know him, to love him, to serve him in this world, so as to be happy with him in the next. This seems to have been completely lost yeah. in the society in which we live. So we see all of this going on, and it all comes down to a, a rejection of Christ as king. We will not have him to reign over us. That's what it comes down to. So you and I have to stand up and we say, Christ is king. And yes, he does. He does have the rights of a king over all humankind. Not only in the church militant in the world today, but over all mankind. Every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. We have to stand up and say that without any hesitation. Without any apology. We have to say that this is what's happened. This is the truth. And we're going to learn the hard way that it is true. And we're proving it to ourselves by what's happening to our society right now. Because if we will not have Christ to reign over us, we'll be, reign, we'll be governed by parasites. The ultimate parasite is Lucifer himself. He's the Satan. He wants to gorge himself and his egoism and all other egos. He wants to swallow them alive as, well, C.S. Lewis portrayed that in the screw tape letters, right? He was feasting, right? Feasting on the souls, or gobbling them down. And, and so this is, he's the ultimate parasite, Lucifer. And so he'll have his uh, fellow parasites, his assistant parasites on earth, um, just, uh, you know, lording it over the world and, and just gorging themselves on human beings. They'll have to ultimately realize, though, they have to admit, though, that this is their lot, this is what they've done, this is what they brought on themselves and the rest of the world because they would not accept our Lord Jesus Christ as their king. His law his gospel, and uh, the, the commandments that he's given us, we can only have a real, truly uh, well-ordered society of, of justice and peace when it is uh, under the reign of Christ. That's why Pope Pius XI and, and Pope Pius X before him Shows that, you know, the, the, the peace of Christ in the reign of Christ, Pax Christi and Regno Christi, and to restore all things in Christ. These are the mottos um, that really express that idea. And that's our ideal. That's what you and I have to stand for now and stand up for right now. Amen. Father, thanks for all that. I think this has been a very encouraging uh, program. So, very helpful. Well, I hope so, so Tom. Beautiful yes. feast days. Yes. Right. So, yeah. So thank you for all of that, Father, and um, thanks for everything that you do. I appreciate it, and all of our viewers certainly do as well. Oh. So God bless you. Thank you, too. You, too. Yep. And thank them, too. Yes, absolutely. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Hearts of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you. <laughs>